Hello, and welcome to the Related to Geeks podcast, the podcast about a geeky family. This is episode 6, original air date, October 15th, 2015. Hello, my name's Megan. I am your host and the youngest of the siblings, and with us tonight is my brother, Kier. Hello. My sister, Sarah. Hi. And our dad, Harry Larry. I just want to point out that it's a magic date. 10-15-2015. 10-15-2015. That is, that is pretty magical. So it ought to be a magic show. <laughs> High hopes for that. High hopes indeed. Um, to explain a little bit about this particular podcast, we're going to start off with our first segment. That's our What's Caused Us to Geek Out Lately segment. Then we'll take a quick break, come back with our topic of the week, and wrap things up with a pretty bow with our picks of the week. So we're going to start off with, Dad, what, what's caused you to geek out lately, since you had your anecdote about the date? Okay, um, this is the backup system part two. We discussed the uh, backup system and how I was using it to back up everybody's home directory. And last week, I installed a LAMP stack that is Linux, Apache, MySQL, or MariaDB, and PHP. And then I set up Samba um, to share the www directory, which is where the um, the files are served over the LAN. So what I have is a a LAN development system where I can write HTML or PHP or whatever I want to support um, on the LAN and test it um, on this backup server uh, uh, just by uh, uh, editing the file right on the server, save the file, alt-tab to the browser, and then Control-R to refresh the page and test the code. Um, I also installed my CD mailing app, Simple Invoices, on this machine, so I no longer have my uh, CD mailing app out on a virtual server, but it's uh, running on the web server right here on the LAN. Very cool. I am a uh, software developer by trade, largely due uh, to my dad, and uh, uh, I've been developing in PHP for some time now. I really enjoy it. Uh, a recommendation for you, Dad, uh, and and I suppose I have been geeking out about it lately, but this is not my my geeking about about lately subject. Uh, but I've been using Laravel PHP framework, and it is fantastic. I'll look into that, Laravel PHP Framework. Um, for those not quite as geeky as Kier and I, when you're um, developing on a web server that's out on the internet, usually for us in Arkansas, usually in Dallas, um, then you have to use a FTP server, and every time you change your code, you have to upload it to that server and then test it, and then you have to change your code, and you always have that extra step of uploading, which depending on your bandwidth, may go really fast or may not, you know. Um, so uh, this being able to develop right on the LAN is really going to make things swift. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, whenever I try to develop, I try to develop on a local LAMP stack, and whenever I can't, I use a uh, FTP or, uh, or S, uh, SSH program. And I typically try to just edit the files directly on the server in my text editor and save them to the server. 
uh-huh. but there's still there's still an FTP transfer there. It just uh, is kind of hidden. Yeah. Um, uh, with FileZilla, you can open the file from your FTP client on your on your local server, on your local mm-hmm. machine, and every time you do a save, it will give you a prompt whether you're ready to upload it. So you don't have to go over and double click or anything, but you still have that transfer time. Yep. So that's that what I'm avoiding up. here. And as as you know, I myself, Robot Dad, am the bandwidth deprived one in this family, which is <laughs> rather ironic since uh, uh, I've been on the internet since forever. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the there me that really. Internet really literally lives in the middle of nowhere and actually has decent internet which you would not expect yeah uh i use um ftp at at work and uh the danger with that that i see is when you upload it and you load the web page you kind of feel like the minor mistakes you can just let slide because then you don't have to go through the whole process of re-uploading everything (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're just like, eh, no one's going to notice that. <laughs> so that's the uh, that's the big danger that I see with the FTP is it it's it's not good for the lazy. It's just an extra step. It's just and an it's extra an extra step. step with every little change you make. So All right. Uh Sarah, how about you? What's caused you to geek out lately? So this is probably not going to sound like something that would normally be on a related to Geeks podcast, but um, what's caused me to geek out lately is my Cubs are in the playoffs, which is kind of crazy. And um, <laughs> a sports <it's>, geek, um, <laughs> a sports geek for you know Cubs in their playoffs and a little bit of the Bears, but uh, <laughs> I'm not the sports geek. My husband is the sports geek. I um. I do I do follow the Cubs and um not I don't usually watch games unless they're in the playoffs, which means I rarely watch a Cubs game. Um and, and by the time by the time this airs we'll probably know whether or not they beat the Cardinals in the series. Um but at this point we don't know. Right now it's Cubs two, Cardinals one. So there's still one more one more win that the Cubs have to pull out to win it. But um, um, I'm I'm hoping I'd like to be able to watch them a little bit more this season, and um, you know it's been it's been a few years since they've been in the playoffs. I think 2008 was the last year, so so we're pretty excited in this house. Um, and like I said, I was never a sports fan growing up. It was not anything I I spent time on. Um, I mean, I went to like some some local college ball games, but that was about the the end of it and um then i married a huge sports fan so that 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 became something that you know certain teams such as like i said the bears i will watch every bears football game i can and i will watch like i said i don't tend to schedule time around baseball games but i will definitely do that if they're in the playoffs so i'm gonna make your thing actually geeky um and and talk about the fact that somebody mentioned today that in back to the future when they go into the future to 2015 it actually says the cubs are in the playoffs so just a little <laughs> easter egg there they got one right yeah, they don't have funny. all of our other stuff 
That, yeah, that but they also happen. say that they pull a win out against the Marlins, who are not in the playoffs. So, hey, hey, <laughs> listen, you well, can't get everything right. <laughs> I just want Jaws nineteen. <laughs> you want Jaws nineteen? <laughs> oh man, I want to watch those movies again. I haven't seen them in years. They're good stuff. <laughs> when, Seems when like I this is a, the year to do it. When I was a kid. I saw Ernie Banks play at Wrigley Field. And then, here's the irony, the Wrigley Field stop was my L stop. I lived for a year, two blocks from Wrigley Field, and never went to a game. Yeah. Ernie, speaking of Ernie Banks, he led the um, he led the song in the seventh inning stretch to notch. So that was kind of cool. Okay, so that's appropriate, too. We're so on point with our sports knowledge. <laughs> and that is the end-all be-all of mine. <laughs> but I'm excited, so I thought I'd share. At, at work, um, I work at a newspaper, and at work we do a, a football forecast contest. And it's just, you know, we pick upcoming games, and then people try to guess who they think is going to be the winners of those games. And based on how well they do, they, they can win gift certificates and such. And uh, I've that's kind of fallen into my lap, and I'm just like I am the worst person to do this because like I try to pick t- like games, and they're like that's so super obvious who's gonna win that game that there's no way that that needs to be used. Like they'll they'll edit me quite a bit. Uh, I just I don't know anything about sports, so <laughs> it's funny that I'm the one that's tasked with that right now. Especially since we do have a sister that she happens to work with who is probably, I would say, of our family, the biggest sports fan. Yeah. Which, you know, isn't really saying a whole lot as far as usually, sports Yeah, goes. usually <laughs> when I say that I, when I do it, it's basically I ask the room, hey, is this a good game? And they're like, eh. And I'm like, how about this one? They're like, yeah, use that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just go down the list. <laughs> got a i've got a friend who uses the generic term sports ball for all sports i uh, i I've, I've really grown to like that sport that, that that term uh so i'm i'm aware that the the cubs and the bears play sports ball <laughs> there you go so what happens for the sports that don't use balls still uh, sports ball still sports ball it's a hockey sports ball <laughs> hockey sports <laughs> hockey sports ball <laughs> All right. For all I know, the Cubs play hockey sports ball. That's, I mean. <laughs> that is incorrect, but you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good to know. Kier, you're next. What's caused yeah. you to geek out? Uh, I have, I work at a place called Rural Sourcing Incorporated, and uh, it is uh, basically, instead of outsourcing your software development overseas, you're outsourcing it to uh, smaller cities still in the United States. And this gives you the best of both worlds. You get reduced cost, and you get uh, basically a closer timeline, and you don't have the language barrier. Uh, the thing with this type of job is that you tend to have some downtime with the job. Uh, so between clients, you need to fill that time and they want people to be training. And I recently got tasked to be in charge 
of making sure that people in downtime between clients have cool, interesting things to do and learn and train on. And that's what I've been doing. And I've been putting an emphasis on technology over content, basically saying that when you're in downtime between clients, I want you to program whatever it is that you really want to program as long as the technology is applicable to things that uh, rule sourcing will sell down the line. And it has completely transformed our downtime, which used to be dreaded and is now an incredibly exciting time to learn new skills and develop software that you want to develop. And if you look at the packages that are being developed on our, our downtime phase right now, it is incredible the cool stuff that you see and super duper geeky stuff. You've got video game databases and role-playing game applications and, uh, you know, uh, movie night apps and all of these things that people are really passionate about and they're learning their new skills. And uh, I, I think that it has made rural sourcing one of the coolest places you can work. Are any of these apps available on the World Wide Web or the Intertubes, as they say? <laughs> we are actually in the process of trying to release a few of these. Uh, we're, uh, we've been working on some uh, WordPress extensions and some Chrome extensions. Uh, one of my uh, coworkers recently worked on a extension. This is, this is just kind of a goofy, fun little thing, but you can put in a little uh, tag delimiter for an image, type in your image, and it'll pop up a window for a Google image search for that image so that you can embed that. So when you say uh, in your Google email, happy birthday, you can embed a little happy birthday image, and it just does a Google search for happy birthday, and you can throw a little happy birthday cake in there or something like that real, real quick. That's cool. Yeah. And he's extended it to things like potentially Tumblr and Reddit and Facebook. And mm -hmm. Okay, Megan, geek out for us. All right. So um, I, I couldn't narrow it down to a specific thing, so I'm going to do like a category, and that's it's October. <laughs> and so I feel like I've been watching... Uh, YouTube videos about scary games coming out. I've been uh, playing some scary games. We had a spooky game day this last uh, we, uh, Saturday and played spooky games all day. Um, and I've been watching uh, iZombie and trying to catch up on The Walking Dead. And like I did all of these things individually and then realized as I started going through the things I've been doing lately, I was just like, all of these are spooky in some way so i'm just enjoying the month of october um i'm one of those that actually enjoy scary games i know a lot of people don't or really just kind of enjoy watching other people play them i enjoy playing them myself uh and so doing a little bit of that and uh had a had a blast this last weekend at the game day the board game day getting the separation between the video games and the board games probably make this whole ramble a little bit more sensical but Lots of lots of fun with all of that. 
So is uh, is iZombie a new Apple product? iZombie is, it was originally a comic book, and now it's a series on the CW. Apparently all the shows I watch is on the CW, because that's where uh, all of my DC shows are on. And then uh, I started watching iZombie the other day. Uh, it just it just hit Netflix, so I started watching it. And my biggest problem with iZombie is it's not really a zombie thing, and so the the zombies don't really behave like zombies unless put on under very specific circumstances and so it kind of is a disconnect for me uh but as far as just the show itself it's just it's just a learning curve that i have to do i have to tell myself okay this isn't actually zombies you know you can't go from walking dead to i zombie and and expect the same results because they're very different shows i've actually heard really good things about i zombie i've yet to sit down and watch it uh but you know, I'm I'm in a situation where I I tend to want to watch you know a couple of hours of television a week, and there are entirely too many good shows on right now. There really what is. is. The premise? Oh, sorry. The premise of iZombie. Yeah. Um, the premise of iZombie is a a girl that's kind of on the fast track in life as far as you know doing well in her career, engaged, set to be married, such and such, goes goes to a party offhand and ends up basically getting attacked by zombies and turned into a zombie. However, uh, these are relatively um, human-like zombies. Um, they, they eat brains. Um, the more they eat, the more they retain their humanity. So it's actually when they deprive themselves of their zombie instincts that they become more zombie-like or when they're put in stressful situations they'll become more of that animalistic you know I'm gonna eat you type of zombie uh, and then in eating the brains they inherit certain traits and memories from the original uh, host so as she she works in a morgue and, and she eats these people's brains and she, if she eats like the brain of an artist, all of a sudden she's really inspired and wants to paint all the time, um, and has all of his memories and helps that to solve, you know, the murder of that particular host. I have seen the first episode or two of this, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent sure of the title, so I didn't want to say I've seen it, and then be like, no, wait, it's a different show. <laughs> so, but it was last year that we watched them, and. And I don't know why we stopped. I honestly don't because it wasn't. I don't think it was anything that any of us disliked. It just fell off our radar for some reason. So I guess we need to check it out again. Yeah, it kind of feels like it kind of feels like a popcorn show. Like I could sit down and watch it anytime and enjoy it, but it's not really one of those that I'm like desperate to watch the next episode of. I've heard that you have to uh, suspend your your disbelief a bit because uh, or suspension of belief I don't know how that term goes <laughs> suspension of disbelief suspension of I don't understand that term now <laughs> I've I've heard that one of the things that's a little awkward about the show is that she's eating the brains of all these uh, people in the morgue and yet no one seems to have noticed 
Well, her boss has. Her boss in the morgue knows right away that she's a zombie. Yeah, but still, like... Nobody, nobody beyond think, that. <laughs> you would think that one of the family members would be like, Now, when he died, he didn't have this uh, cranial scar here. Maybe they, maybe they like comb the hair in certain ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gave him a Trump comb over. <laughs> but most other zombie shows, you don't have to suspend your disbelief at all. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what they got going for them. Hey. You watch that, you're like, this could totally happen. I am not a zombie movie fan, so I have not seen many things that relate to that. I don't um, watch scary movies. Night of the Comet is my favorite zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is a ridiculous movie. <laughs> What's that? The ultimate problem with the the zombie genre is that basically you're taking every positive survival quality of a human and you're stripping it out and you basically have what what you have left is a wild animal that is slower dumber, has less instincts than any other wild animal out there that already poses little threats to humans. So, the genre as a whole is flawed. Well, and I, I was watching something recently where somebody pointed that out. I was like, am I the only one that just thinks if the zombie apocalypse were was to actually occur, we would just take care of it? It would just, you know, just blow the zombies to bits and be done with it? I mean, I don't understand what threat they, they have. Um, which a lot of it is, you know, the concept of the idea that uh, The Walking Dead and Romero uh, does is, you know, you're going to just come back a zombie, you know. And all the recently dead are just going to be zombies. And when you think about how many people die in a day, you can think of the numbers there, it does get overwhelming quickly. We could do an entire show on zombies. We probably, probably will. So, with that being said, my my, what's caused me to geek out lately is just spooky stuff in, in general. Get, getting hyped for Halloween. So uh, that's our what's caused us to geek out lately section. We're gonna take a short break and come back with our topic of the week. You're listening to the Related to Geeks podcast, the podcast of a geeky family. Check out our website. RelatedToGeeks.com and our YouTube channel where you can also enjoy our videos. Alright everybody, welcome back. Our topic of the week is geek literature. I like geeky things and I like literature so when you combine the two I am a happy girl. Uh, let's open this up for discussion. Okay, I'm going to start. Um, when I was a kid, I read a lot of science fiction. And, of course, that's like the prototype geek literature is science fiction. And uh, 
I started reading science fiction in the 50s, late 50s, and throughout the 60s, of course, I read it. And that was uh, uh, past the era of the Golden Age, but I still read all that Golden Age literature. Now, this was uh, defined by John W. Campbell, the editor for The Pulse, like um, amazing stories and stuff like that. And John W. W. Campbell was all about hardcore science fiction. The fiction was about scientists, and they had to use science somewhere in the plot. I mean, the story had to depend on science. And there was a whole, I mean, science fiction isn't really like that anymore. And uh, so some of the leading names from that era, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, of course, and Jack Vance. So I don't know if anybody else has read any of that 30s and 40s golden age science fiction, but that to me is the start of geek literature. Um, you gave me a, a book that had a collection in it. Is it C.L. Moore or something along those lines? Yeah, C.L. Moore. When, when is that's a female, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a female. And uh, she may be... Um, she continued writing, and her husband also wrote. But there may be some Golden Age stuff in that. This is a lot of the Appendix N stuff from Dungeons & Dragons, too. All of the stuff that Gary Gygax said that he pulled his inspiration from Jack Vance. And, and Fritz Lieber. And Fritz Lieber. Yeah, and, another Golden you know, Age a lot, of the, a lot of the old pulp stuff mm -hmm. as well i mean it's just there's just so much of it and i have a collection of it but i've never read any of it uh cthulhu yeah uh lovecraft yeah, yeah. lovecraft yeah. is one of yeah them. that's that's really appendix in um Ed edgar rice burroughs i'm trying to to pull some yeah. names off the yeah. top of my head i think what's I mean, most what's most interesting about science fiction in particular is how much of an influence female writers had. Um, I mean, you go, I mean, we just mentioned C.L. Moore, but you go back to kind of the origin of it, and you've got Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. Um, yes. And, you and know. Andre, Andre Norton, also a woman. Yeah, just tremendous yeah. Uh, defining of a genre um, from females with a genre that I feel like probably a lot of people associate with males. I had no idea that Andre Norton was a woman. I did not know that. Yeah, and and Golden Age was very definitely male-dominated, so that uh, female writers also wrote under a male name or with initials. And, um, and it was typically very flat characterization, and women were just objectified and played only minor roles, except for, of course, Podcane of Mars by... Uh, Robert Heinlein, which is a juvenile with a female protagonist. Quite unusual for the time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of female science fiction authors, one of my favorite science fiction authors is Ursula K. Le Guin. And yeah, and she, probably, she was groundbreaking. Yeah, and probably yes. my favorite book of hers is probably not everyone's favorite book of hers, but my favorite book of hers was Lathe of Heaven. I think most people tend toward uh, Left Hand of Darkness, but I adored Lathe of Heaven, and it was uh, just 
that uh, extreme science and extreme philosophy. Yeah, that's all changed now. I would guess fifty percent of the science f successful science fiction writers are female, maybe more. Well, and especially yeah. with the onset of all of the dystopian fiction that has become super popular in the past, I don't know, fifteen years or so. Um, all of these dystopian science fiction, The Hunger Games, and Divergent, and Matched, and all of these books, all feature female um, protagonists. Absolutely. And yeah. are, mm -hmm. I think all the ones I just mentioned were also written by women. Uh, I recently, and by recently, it's probably been uh, a few years, but I reread it from time to time. I found a short story online called The Egg. And it is literally a, you know, three or four minute read. It's super quick read. Uh, and uh, I believe it's by Andy Weir. And it is absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend this enough. Uh, but uh, it just uh, touches very briefly on the afterlife. And I don't want to go into it because I don't want to, you know, give anything away. But it is absolutely wonderful takes five minutes to read and you should look it up we'll have to include the link yeah my favorite science fiction author was Madeline Langle. um I definitely in my teenage years especially read a large a large portion of her of her novels and, another uh, female author with female protagonists Yes, um, and I think that's probably a very big part of what drew me to her books. Um, but she also, I think, just spoke with a voice that I I really liked and could really connect with. She also came from a theater background, too, so I don't know if that it played any influence on it. And I think I knew that about her. And that was definitely in my very heavy, geeky theater days. Uh, in the 60s, it was exciting for me because um, they they got this uh, new age science fiction and it was being written and created at the time that I was reading it instead of reading something that had been written 20 years earlier. And uh, authors like uh, Harlan Ellison, uh, Roger Zelazny, uh, J.G. Ballard, and Philip K. Dick would write this mind-bending psychological stuff with weird narrative twists and stuff. And it was a completely different genre. I mean, it was not hard science at all. Might not even be a scientist in it. It was just, you know, uh, a look at the future or even a look at today through a weird lens. Yeah, I was just about to bring up Harlan Ellison because uh, a lot of early uh, point-and-click adventure games were inspired by uh, stories, uh, sci-fi short stories and things like that and I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream is a is a big one on that where I became familiar with the game and then went back and actually read the short story. Yeah, Ellison went on and wrote a lot of movies and television. So he actually made some money which science fiction authors generally didn't. Yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite genres is the the alternate timeline you know uh i uh alternate history alternate timeline uh i adore steampunk i think that's just fantastic 
but uh, the the one that comes to mind is uh, a, a book that I read at an age that I probably should not have read it, but, uh, uh, you know, where most parents would discourage kids from reading comics, our mom and dad absolutely embraced it, and they would bring home just giant boxes of comics and things like that, and we would just tear through them, my brother and I, and, uh, uh, one of the books that I read at an age which I probably was too young to appreciate was Watchmen. And it is one of my favorite comics till today. And, uh, but, uh, it is definitely not a book that you should read when you're like, you know, 12 years old or 11 years old. <laughs> we all have to read stuff like that before we're ready to. Yeah. Speaking of like when you're 12 or whatever and reading stuff, I was picking up ancient Greek plays and reading them at 12. And some of them were fine. I mean, I don't think that any of them were, like I would say, inappropriate. But I certainly didn't understand that when I was reading The Clouds and the Frogs that it was political satire. You know, it didn't occur to my 12-year-old self that that was anything what it was about. Um, but I still read them, and I still ate them up. And, and, you know, and obviously, you know, stories like Oedipus Rex and stuff, I I think was easier to see what the story was about than some other ones. Um, somehow, but it, somehow, um, you know, marrying your mother and poking your eyes out seems kind of hardcore to me, you know, for kids. <laughs> 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 well, you know, <laughs> but, and maybe it wasn't appropriate. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Not inappropriate. I didn't, think, I, I didn't think of it as such, so I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I didn't say it was. It wasn't harsh. I just said that 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 kind of story was easy to understand, as opposed to some of the ancient comedies. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so on this other track, along with science fiction, Sarah's leading me into this, fantasy literature going all the way back to mythology and legends, the Greek plays and the stories of Hercules and stuff like that. And um, uh, uh, that, so that's prehistory, really. Fantasy literature goes to prehistory. Um, and it's really today's novels that started in the 17th or 18th century and they're the newcomers it's the fantasy literature that that goes all the way back yeah people yeah, have been I geeks mean, for a long time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know i i have never actually really been that big of a science fiction or a fantasy literature fan i'll read i mean i'll read just about anything um well i used to read just about anything i don't read as much now as i used to but uh, my daughter, <laughs> you've heard you've heard me talk about Liz a lot. She is a huge reader, and right now she is working her way through um, R.A. Salvatore. Um, like like he's written, you know, he's never going to write a book again, and she has to plow her way through him. Or he's writing his next book. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but she just can't get enough of it. It is. She is. She is all about reading about Dredd's right now. 
Yeah, and all of that is uh, straight out of the Dungeons and Dragons culture, the R.A. Salvatore stuff. So it's mm -hmm. definitely geek literature. Um, whereas, whereas the Fritz Lieber, Faffer and the Grey Mauser, was pre-D&D and inspired D&D, it's Dungeons and Dragons that inspired R.A. Salvatore and his quest-like novels. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, it's written in a world that came straight out of of D&D. So anyway, um, you know, a lot of people's fantasy begins with J.R.R. Tolkien. And then, of course, the, the big name in fantasy right now is George R.R. R. Martin. So if I write any fantasy, it'll be Harry R.R. R. Larry. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, also a good pirate name. Yes. R -R. R -R, yes. Good fantasy writers have pirate names. <laughs> I suppose if you want to uh, do a, a country fantasy mashup, you could be Travis R.R. R. Travis. Right. Country fantasy mashup. I actually wrote a song today that's country jazz well I feel like the untapped uh, crossover is the fantasy country song yeah and the thing that's funny about that is in rock it's common it's not uncommon at all there's all kinds of science fiction and fantasy rock songs but you somehow it's not broke into the country market except of course ghost stories like uh, Long Black Veil yeah. Ghost Riders in the Sky. Yeah. Um, back on the subject of comics, uh, I don't know if I would say if there's one comic I would recommend it would be this because I feel like it builds off other comics. But probably my favorite comic right now is the Astro City series. And uh, what the Astro City series does well is it takes a look at side characters and important stories or it takes a look at the everyday lives of important characters. So, as an example, in, in the comic, you'll be reading uh, about how, you know, this is the time when this alien from another dimension came in and all of these various superhero teams had to team up to take out this alien to stop it from turning the entire world into zombies. But all of this is happening in the background right now, and instead we're going to focus on the, the life of this one street-level thug who got wrapped up in something that was a little bit bigger than him and is now being hunted by a vigilante. And all of this other stuff is always going on tertiarily in the background because that's the world they live in. But this is what the lives of the ordinary people in this world are like. And alternatively, it explores, all right, here's, you know, this pinnacle of superheroism and he's just trying to go on a date. And this is, this is how that works for him whenever he has to run out and save the world, you know, every minute and a half or two minutes. Cool. Yeah, I've mentioned this before. I I really wish I had embraced comics more growing up because now I feel like it's a hard access point for me because I'm never really sure where to start. There's just so much of it. I mean, not like there's 
not so much of everything now because it's the world we live in, but comic books specifically, I find hard for me to narrow down, you know, good places to to pick up uh, series and such. So anytime I can get a recommendation like that, that's what I... I'm familiar with a lot of the characters, I feel, but I just, I don't know what to read. Yeah, and I feel like uh, Astro City is probably a little bit more accessible these days when comics are so prevalent in movies you know even if you've never picked up a comic book odds are you've seen a dozen comic book movies yeah absolutely and um going on the the comic route um but not superheroes uh I just want to put a huge plug out there because if you've watched the show and you enjoy the show and you haven't picked up the comics yet you really need to read the Walking Dead comics they they really are stellar. Um, mm-hmm. There's a reason why so much was invested into the show uh, because the, the the comics have a huge following and um, really uh, handle the zombie genre well. Um, have their misses, but so does the show, uh, season two, for example. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, fabulous fabulous series. Um, and definitely not anything you have to worry about, you know, an entry point for because it's a really isolated thing. It's not it's not built on a foundation of, you know, decades upon decades of superhero comics. One of my favorite uh, sci-fi short story collections is one that Dad gave me when I was a teenager called Dangerous Visions. Yeah, that's and a Harlan. That's a Harlan Ellison anthology. Man, that's, that one that's is a so new good. age, yeah, new age. A lot of, a lot of uh, seminal new age short stories in that collection. Yeah, dangerous visions. And uh, the the concept for those who are not familiar with it is, it is short stories that very famous science fiction authors wrote and either never bothered to even submit it or never could find someone to publish it and. They put them all together in this anthology, and they're just tremendous short stories. And I'm not going to say that every one of them is perfect by any means, but it is an excellent source of inspiration for any uh, aspiring author, and it is an excellent source of entertainment for anyone who's just a science fiction fan. Um, I read it... I read the book club edition, so that's when it first came out, and um, every story at the time was groundbreaking. Nowadays, not so much, but at the time, boy, they were groundbreaking. Because science fiction was very much a genre fiction, like mystery fiction or uh, romance, where there were, you know, accepted plot outcomes and accepted female interests and stuff like that and beyond that it didn't you know the editors were very strict about what their audience wanted you know because they were trying to make a living selling these little magazines for 50 cents you know so yeah my my very first chapter book that i think i even remember reading was a um was a science fiction story um and oh my gosh i'm gonna look it up real quick but because I know I'll mess it up. 
Oh, shoot. It's like the... I can't find it. It's like the wonderful voyage to the mushroom planet or something along those lines. We'll link it. Um. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> She'll find it later and link it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll be wrong because that's always the uh, the wonderful flight. <laughs> wonderful flight. What is it? I, the I wonderful saw the, uh, flight. I saw the movie spinoff. Uh, it was called Tenth Kingdom. <laughs> he had a wonderful flight to the Mushroom Planet. <laughs> it's um, Eleanor Cameron, the Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet, and okay. um, it's 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 really meant for young kids. Um, and it was well, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got here. Oh, okay. It's got here a publishing date of 1988, and I'm like, no, I did not read this in 1988, but then I looked, it was my favorite book in 1962, <laughs> so it is an older book that must have been reprinted, um, but yeah, I think I read it first first grade, um, and I don't remember a whole lot of the story, but there's enough of it that stuck with me that I remember I enjoyed it, and I reread it even like when I was working at the library because I was talking about this was my first book and one of my coworkers or you were making that title up and then sometime later somebody checked it in and she held it back for me so I could reread it but yeah I mean it's about a bunch of kids that go to a mushroom planet and <laughs> and then I also read speaking of like kids literature science fiction Danny Dunn which I'm pretty sure yeah. you read as well didn't you dad absolutely like way back as, when as a so. child yes and Danny i still Dunn. have i still have some danny dunn books but i was never able to get liz to read them so and and it's probably young for her now i don't know if she would appreciate them as much now as she would have when she was like fifth grade but boy i liked those books a lot so i feel like even though it's not really an area that i i give a lot of attention to i i did some during my teenage years i feel like it's it's wrong to talk about geek literature and not give at least some nod to fan fiction i think you're right i think extremely important part of geek literature and not a part i'm very familiar with at yeah. all i haven't read or any that i know of fan fiction well and it's it really is just um such a uh, an embrace of of these worlds that are created um, by the fans that they're so invested that they actually take the time to write about these characters in these places um, and I think it really shows just how much you know these these fans will will invest in these stories that they love uh, and I I read some quite a bit. Uh, in my early teens, you know, back when I had more time than I knew what to do with. Uh, and I remember enjoying it. And I, you know, I, I, I wrote occasionally. Mostly I would do, like, collaborative stuff. Um, basically role-playing through uh, forums. But we would just, you know, adopt characters and, 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 you know, write their lines and develop a story together. Um, which, was, which was the most fun um, to do collaborative storytelling with other people where basically everybody just you know played a character and and told their own story uh which was great because at any point somebody could come in and be like and then 
wild mutant bunnies attacked and then you had to deal with that situation uh so fan fiction i think uh is definitely a very relevant and important part of geek literature i think probably one of the uh biggest sources of fan fiction out there is probably doctor who and uh i think it's developed to the point where uh after the show was uh eventually canceled and then they did a uh tried to do a, a movie pilot reboot in america and then that ultimately when it didn't go anywhere uh there was a company out there that basically did you know they actually had to do some some licensing i'm sure but they did fan uh radio broadcasts essentially uh fan made and they actually went so far as to pull in original actors from the show to record the parts why cool yeah there's uh megan do you know who the uh the eighth doctor is who played him i can't think of his name um man it's gonna bug me i want to say it's something like gan or megan or uh is it paul mcgann yeah that's right because it's sylvester mccoy and yeah, then paul yeah. mcgann i think so yeah paul mcgann actually uh you know he only ha had that one short-lived movie and the movie's not great paul mcgann is wonderful in it but the movie's not great but he went on to record a bunch of cds and i'm not listening to them and i want to desperately uh and uh i mean uh there i cannot remember the the company's name we'll have to link it but as near as I can tell, I mean, they might be ha have some licensing, but they're not really related to BBC. Uh, and I could be totally wrong on that. They could 100% be a subsidiary of BBC. I'm not up to date on my uh, British Broadcasting Company subsidiaries. <laughs> um, well, and, and still touching on that area of fan fiction... The fact of the matter is, is that for any show, um, any television show that's out there, there's companion novels um, that are written by people who aren't part of the show that tell stories of the same characters. You know, it's paid fan fiction. Um, anytime you have a new writer come in and tell a different take on, like, a superhero, that's, again, that same uh, idea of taking the, the foundation that was... Uh, set before and, and telling your own story with it um, and then of course you see that again and again because every author who writes anything is inspired by other authors and the stories they tell um, so I just I really wanted to touch on fan fiction because I feel like there's still some people that feel like it's weird or like it's not creative or that there's a really weird stigma that fan fiction has that I I personally do not support at all. I think fan fiction is wonderful. If you enjoy writing fan fiction, reading fan fiction, doing anything involving fan fiction, I think it's great, and I think you should do that. Yes, and you should also watch the video. Everything's a remix. 
So I can't, uh, I can't not mention Terry Pratchett. So Discworld has <laughs> been mentioned. I also want to mention uh, um, Kelly Link and Corey Doctorow, who uh, put a lot of their work uh, up on the internet under uh, Creative Commons licenses. So in terms of free culture, free to share, free to translate, you know, um, and, and in a way they are encouraging fan fiction by doing that. Um, but certainly, um, like Kira's short story, free to download and read. And uh, also in the world of free culture, going all the way back to the pulps, a lot of those stories were copyrighted, but that was back when they had to renew them. And they were never renewed because no one thought they were worth anything or had any value. And so there's a lot of Philip K. Dick stories and Ambrose Spears and others on Gutenberg. The portion of geek literature I was going to comment on. Um, and I, I know the literature part could be kind of used a little bit loosely, but I will defend it. And that is nonfiction books. Um and the reason I will defend it is nonfiction books have become so much more readable because I don't know. I mean, people think nonfiction, they think dry, they think textbook. And and there's been a real push, especially in children's and young adult literature uh, or young adult books to, to make those nonfiction books a lot more accessible um, for readers. And... Yeah. And I think nonfiction has has probably always been, uh, you know, my favorite type of book to read. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of relating to that, uh, when I was, uh, I'm not sure how old I was whenever I first got it, but uh, Dad got me the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And whenever I got it, I was actually confused because I didn't know just off of the title and cover. Whether or not it was a work of fiction or non-fiction. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously it's not going to be a non-fiction book about people hitchhiking across the galaxy. But whenever, whenever you have actual non-fiction books with titles like A Brief History of Time, or what was, is it Brief History of Time or A Brief History of the yeah. Universe? Oh, Time. Yeah. Time. Yeah, A Brief History of Time, you know. There, there's not just a whole lot of difference between that title and A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, they're both a little right. bit tongue-in-cheek. And and uh, so, uh, in, in that regard, yeah, I mean, uh, there are a lot of uh, non-fiction books which are updated to be uh, uh, kind of that, that tongue-in-cheek style, uh, not taking themselves quite so seriously. I think a lot of it just has to do that it's written more like a story as opposed to just a whole bunch of facts on a book. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure with some of these books, there are lots of liberties taken that I will never realize. But, um, and, 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 you know, and I think that's probably especially true in biographies and stuff. But boy, I like reading biographies. It's kind of like, kind of like reality TV, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh. Um, but you know, and then oh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say that I think one reason why um, nonfiction books, in particular, have exploded and and taken on a, a new life is because of bloggers, um, basically, you know, expanding their audience. Um, there's a lot of bloggers out there that will 
write a book in the style of a of a blog and it's much more readable it's it's got personal touches to it that you wouldn't always expect to find in the what you're calling like the dry biography textbook type nonfiction that you sometimes think of and uh, I think one really interesting example of that that not only um, is written kind of differently but it has also gotten a lot of you know bloggers interested in it is the uh, the uh, what is it the life-changing magic of tidying up um, yeah she uh, uh Marie Kondo yeah she wrote it in such a way that not only is it kind of witty and creative but it also really shows you some things about her culture and and her way of life and it, it's really educational in that way without being like no this is you know what we believe and this is you know how our cultures are different no she was just talking about you know cleaning out your junk and decluttering your life but there's so much extra to glean from that i uh you know i i, I don't even i can't believe we haven't even mentioned this but i worked in a in a library for a number of years about five years um and and was actually working on my master's degree when when i left the library and then i decided to homeschool and stay at home and and not bring in a paycheck which means i did not finish my master's degree but one of the projects that i worked on i did a, a non-fiction for young adults um well no it may have been a uh for youth services so anyway one of the 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 um there's an award given in the the um by ala for children's nonfiction. It's, it's just kind of the best nonfiction book for juveniles in a, in a certain year. It's kind of like the Newberry, but for nonfiction. And well, I decided to do my project based on, it was a fairly new award. I think it started in, I think it was maybe started in 2000, 1999, something like this. And this would have been like 2005 that I did this project. And I did just my project based on the winners and honor books that were biographies in those five years. And I think I was able to pull, I don't know, close to a dozen books. And it was so interesting to see the varying ways that biographies were presented based on age, because some were definitely written for, say, an elementary school student, where some were definitely written more for, you know, fifth, sixth grade. So you were definitely dealing with picture books and things that were very text heavy and had no pictures and and oftentimes well I don't know if I would say oftentimes but at least once it was on the same subject so we had a a book that was more geared for like a third grader and a book that was more geared for like a sixth grader Marian Anderson she um, <laughs> she sang at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939 and she was the first black singer hired by the the Met. So that's but but I read a couple of different biographies on her and I think one had won the Cyber Award and one hadn't. But they were still still both very good books. And one was very much geared towards a younger audience, the other one was geared towards an older audience and it was just kind of interesting to see the similarities and differences between the two books and other books. There's also and this is kind of dealing with the history part of geekiness um 
I think an interesting thing to do and something that I've, I've been, I've threatened to do with my daughter and we haven't done it yet, but there's a couple of books written about the yellow fever epidemic and, you know, in Philadelphia in the, the late 1700s. And one, one of them is a nonfiction book and one of them is a fiction book. And I really would love to see her do a compare and contrast of those two stories because, you know, reading through it, you can definitely, I mean, I think that's a really good lesson about historical fiction that even though some of this is made up, there is definitely a lot of research that goes into writing those books. And, and, and I think it's really interesting when you can read those two books back to back. Um, and, and one of them's called, I think it's Fever 1793, and the other one is The Yellow Plague. I think it'd be an interesting compare and contrast to show just how well-researched historical fiction is. Jumping back a bit, um, uh-huh. Philip K. Dick? Yeah. Was was he the one who wrote, wrote Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say... There's been a bunch of yeah. movies from the Philip K. Dick stuff. Yeah. I want to say that possibly, with the possible exception of uh, Stephen King... I want to say more movies and TV series have been based off of Philip K. Dick's work than probably any other science fiction author. And uh, at the time that he was publishing these stories, they were totally over the edge. He was the bravest of the New Age writers. And yet, now, 50 years later, they're as mainstream as anything gets. Yeah. Um, But uh, he did Blade Runner. uh, I'm naming movies That's to Android Stream of Electric Sheep, yeah. Yep, and he did uh, Minority Report. Yeah, and uh, uh, The Running Man, actually. Yeah, one of his most popular novels was Man in a High Castle. Amazing guy. Um, but getting back to the nonfiction, um, Isaac Asimov wrote more nonfiction than he did fiction. Really? Yeah, more nonfiction. He was a science popularizer for youth. I did not know that. Yeah, and his stuff is still, uh, it's not as timely as it was, of course, but it's still available, and some of it, of course, is still timely. Um, And uh, speaking of Asimov, I can't wait for the new Apple product, iRobot. I think that actually already exists, doesn't it? Isn't that like, uh, didn't they name one of the Roombas the iRobot or something? Uh, Could be. I don't know. Or it could be I don't, the main think, it, I don't think it's an Apple, though. I no. want the actual Apple iRobot. It hasn't bothered buying any other Apple products, but that one. I saw, I saw, I saw the iRobot on a, a television show. I think it was Fooly Cooly. Going into, uh, I'm just going to make this, I'm going to force this segue because I want to mention this book, but going into a more modern science fiction book, uh, Ready Player One, you should read that. I read it. I do. Everyone I knew that was coming up. I have not read it. I borrowed it from Megan for about six months or so. And and never actually. I I, I read the first chapter. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, Uh, I think it was right around the time that that our lives started to get crazy because we were moving yet again. And I just, it just sat there. Yeah. Now let me tell you. I I think Liz would really like to read it as well. Yeah. Let me so tell you, there's a specific it way. Get it from the there is a specific way that you need to read Ready Player One. And that is with Google. 
It, okay. is, it is the geekiest book ever written. It is packed full of references to geek culture. Music, movies, comics, everything we're talking about is in Ready Player One. Yeah, and it's it's really 80-centric too, right? Yeah. Ernest Klein, yeah. who's the author that, I mean, that was clearly his, his era, his decade that he pulled from the most. Pulls from a lot of places, but that was clearly him reliving some, some childhood memories there. Corey Doctorow also writes some amazing stuff built around virtual reality and gaming. And um, just to touch, just real quickly, because I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but just to touch just how geeky Ready Player One is. The premise of the book is you have to find little clues to build up to solving the next puzzle to go through the next section of the game. I mean, it is, I mean, he's essentially playing through a video game throughout the course of the book. And the author within the book hid clues for readers to figure out solutions to, to go through the steps to solve the problem of the book itself, and the person who achieved this won a DeLorean. Huh. <laughs> wow. I'll have to back, the back to the future there a little bit. Um. So just saying, um, he, he took this book very seriously. <laughs> When I was 12, um, as I mentioned earlier, I was reading Golden Age, and uh, coincidentally, um, Conley, my grandson and your nephew, is 12. And I was talking to him just last week, and he says he reads everything with people that have superpowers, some kind of superpower, all the books he reads. Um, and it is a uh, another Golden Age for youth, science fiction, and fantasy going on right now probably starting with the success of Harry Potter and all the follow-ons, but the Rick Riordan and it just, uh, you know, the Golden Compass. I mean, there are so many absolutely fantastic young adult fantasy and science fiction novels that are being published every year now. And I think that's just great. Yeah, and for all ages even. I mean, there's there's stuff that's definitely in that fantasy genre that's really meant for young kids to to get into like the um the spider wick chronicles um and things of that nature that are really meant for like that kind of third third grade age range yeah, beginning beginning about. readers also really hardcore stuff that's really geared for adults to read i mean not that it's hardcore sexually but that it's it's hardcore emotionally i mean it's just there's some stuff that's being written now that just sets you back the way that yeah. Golden Age science fiction never would. So, I'm going to ask for a recommendation, and you guys might not be able to recommend anything, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, if I wanted to read a science fiction or fantasy to Wendy, who is five, what would you recommend? I have an what, answer what that will take less time than The Hobbit. Um, okay. <laughs> it really is geared. I mean, I know that was a bedtime story and all this, but this is really geared towards a beginning reader and or young youngster. And it's called My Father's Dragon. My Father's Dragon. Yes, and she will eat it up. Okay. It's what, a, what it's is, a is fun it little. It's about a father and daughter 
that travel to an island and have to tame the animals on the island. That sounds like it would be right up her alley. Yeah, I really think that Wendy would enjoy it. Liz really liked it when I read it to her. I read it to her a couple of times. Uh, when she when, was five when Liz was younger than Wendy, I read her Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. I was going to mention that, that earlier about reading through Alice in Wonderland. We went back and forth, I think, you and me, Dad, where we I would read a chapter out loud and then you would read a chapter out loud. Yeah, yeah. Good Really good geek literature. Fantastic geek literature. Lewis Carroll also wrote mathematical treatises, logic and the game of logic and other pieces like that. Yes. Um, uh, you know, and also other classics. Wizard um, of Oz, and that might be a little, I don't know, it might be a little scary for Wendy at that age. Um, but but this wasn't know. much older when she read them by herself. She was probably seven or eight when she started reading through those books. And I would say own. it's a little, it's, I mean, it's still fantasy, um, but it's a little more uh, streamlined as Winnie the Pooh. Go and read some of the yeah. Winnie the Pooh chapter books to her. Yeah, and, and talking animal books are definitely in the realm of fantasy. And, you know, all you need is, yeah. is cats talking to each other, and it's a fantasy book. Yeah. Charlotte's Web. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, Mr. Popper's Penguins would be a really, it's not, It's. I don't even know that you would call it a fantasy book, but I think she would love it. <laughs> the, uh, the, the mousy ones. Redwall. Yeah, the mousy ones. <laughs> Liz, Redwall. I think, has read through that entire series. And, and she owns the, a uh, chunk of Tiffany, Tiffany Cheng, Terry Pratchett. A little, I don't know, a little over five maybe. But definitely yeah. young, young adult. Yeah. Um, I read Pinocchio to Liz when she was probably about five or six. Yeah, that's a scary one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She did okay with it. Yeah. It just depends. Um, and I think Wendy's very much like Liz that, Liz, that, you know, some things you wouldn't expect to scare her, scare her, and some things that you would expect to scare her don't. So yeah. it's always hard to gauge. <laughs> kids kids uh, got to have scary stuff in their literature, too. It's just they don't really need emotionally devastating. You know, scary's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, I, I grew no, up with... Don't road yeller. That would yeah. be horrible. I grew up watching Night of the Living Dead, so I was just doomed. <laughs> I had two but, but older brothers. I'm That's what they watched, and I watched with them. So, you know, there were some nights where I had nightmares. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we just watched the latest episode of Doctor Who, and Wendy spent half of the episode curled up in a ball with her face buried in my chest. And I, I paused it. I was like, is this too scary? Do you want to not watch this? She's like, no, I want to watch it. <laughs> well, that's what Doctor that's Who what is supposed to be. Well, she probably needed the closure, too. <laughs> yeah. You know? and it would probably be scarier for her not to see the end of it. And I'll say yeah. something about that, because even though it's not really a hopeful ending, when I watched all the way through to the end of Night of the Living Dead as a child, I dealt with it better than if I only watched part of it and, and fell asleep. Well, I want to try to tie a knot in geek literature here so we can move on. But in my lifetime, which is longer than maybe I deserve, but uh, 
when I started reading science fiction and other geek literature, it was definitely a little tiny niche. You know, there were these little magazines that came out once a month, maybe two or three of them. And only adolescent boys bought them, you know. And now everyone in the world consumes geek literature on a daily basis. It's the absolute mainstream of popular entertainment. I think you're right there for sure. Just in what I've seen, what books are coming into libraries. There's supernatural, there's fantasy, and there's science fiction. And especially, like I said, the dystopian stuff is super, super popular right now. Yeah, and television and movies, graphic novels, comics, all of that is, you know, right in one solid line, one solid line back to the Golden Age and pre that, you know, all the way back to mythology. Rick Riordan. Well, I don't think we can we can wrap it up nicer than that. That was beautiful, guys. You made me cry a little bit. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our picks of the week. Follow the show links and download the podcast MP3s at our website, relatedtogeeks.com. We also post geeky stuff on our YouTube channel and our Tumblr. Alright everybody, welcome back. We are going to share our picks of the week and I'll start off and just get mine out of the way real quick. Um, I am going to use Zombie Plague, which is a print and play game um, about zombies. I feel like zombies have been mentioned quite a few times this podcast. Um, but it's it's really uh, a simple game where the moving mechanic is really the, the, the biggest um, learning curve on it. Uh, but everything else is basic combat. Six-siders are used for the the dice, so that's pretty easy to obtain. And then everything else you can print and play. You can print and fold uh, figures uh, to use for your survivors and your zombies. You can print the board. Um, everything is, you know, completely free. All you have to do is pay for the ink and paper. Um, and then you can add to. You can you can buy pre-painted zombie figures or buy zombie miniatures and paint them. You can make it as fancy as you like but it's a it's a really simple base game that you can build off of and a lot of people have so there's a lot of stuff out there um already that you can dig through and find some some really cool additions to that game including additional maps and rules and cards and just a fun game very cinematic game probably the most cinematic zombie game that i've played as far as just you make the decisions in in the game and then you instantly relate it to a movie and you're like oh well i'm the cooper in this scenario or, oh this is this is like this one movie or oh, i see how this has worked out um to where now we're enemies or now we're working together uh so really just a blast of a game i've played it to death and i really thought i was just too sick of it uh to enjoy it anymore and then played it this last weekend at at spooky game day and really enjoyed it um so definitely stands the test of time for me um and also i'm gonna sneak in the flash is on netflix and you should go watch the flash so there's (laughs) that uh but anyway that's my picks (laughs) so i have played uh zombie plague a few times not as many times as megan has and it is genuinely the best zombie game i've ever played uh, and I've played quite a few uh, of these really 
really expensive big box zombie games. And I don't think any one of them has created the cinematic moments that Zombie Plague does. It's very masterfully done in that regard. I will say that there is probably a game that does do a really good job of cinegraphic zombie feeling, but um, it is not free, <laughs> definitely not print and play. It is pretty hard to find up until recently, and that's Dead of Winter. And, and it's it's so much so that I really dislike the game because I'm not a zombie person. Whereas there's a lot of zombie games I can play because I can totally disassociate from the zombie theme. But this one gotcha. really does. But I played Zombie Plague, and it does a pretty dang good job of it too. For you know, especially considering that it doesn't cost sixty dollars. And you know, like I said, up until recently, you you could hardly. It's been out for a year, and it just it would get put in stock and sell out immediately. So yeah. But but it's I, mean, I think if you're into the zombie game and you have you have some spare money sticking around, it's another good one. So I'm going to throw a pick of the week on top of yours. That's not my pick because I don't really enjoy it as much as somebody who really <laughs> enjoys zombies. <laughs> well, my my pick of the week is another board game that I also played at the Spooky Game Day, and that is One Night Ultimate Werewolf. And I played uh, the the week before just to, to get a feel for the rules, and I played it several times at the... Uh, spooky game day, and then one of, found out one of my coworkers has it, so we played it again at lunch. And it puts a real uh, spin on the classic werewolf game. It's narratorless. There's not one player who's dedicated just to be the, the runner of the game. And it is a five-minute version where you get five minutes to debate after the one night to figure out who wins and who's dead. And it's wonderful. I feel like the only real hitch I have with that game, other than the fact that I'm I'm just not a big fan of that genre of the werewolf game in general, and I, I don't think that that's enough of a spin on it to make it be like, oh, this is the best game ever. Um, but I feel like even those who are a, a big fan of the game, the one thing that they might find difficulty is the learning curve on it, because there are a lot of different character types, and you really have to have a general knowledge of them to, to play the game well. So it either needs to be a group of people who are all kind of at the same level, either you know starting the game together and learning the rules together, or it needs to be people who really know the rule set, because otherwise if you have a mix where some people really know what each character does, and some people are just trying to figure it out, it's not going to be very fun for the people who are just trying to figure it out. Yeah, but it really only takes a few playthroughs to get the hang of it, I think. Especially if you right. introduce the rules very slowly. You don't just throw in a dozen rolls right off the bat. Did y'all play just with the base game, or did y'all play with Daybreak as well? Uh, I'm not sure, because I okay. that's the only way I played it, and I don't know which ones are from which. Oh, I guess, well, I guess that's true. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like like what Kier said, it takes five minutes to play, so rarely does only one game get played in a setting. So it definitely gives people time to get familiar with it. The first couple of games might, mm -hmm. might be a little harder, but by the time you're on your third or fourth, I think everybody has a pretty good feel for it. Yeah, it's just Even one of those, never played. there is that learning curve that first couple of times that you play it that will possibly deter people from wanting to continue to play it. So that's just something that you have yeah, to figure out how to overcome. 
Yeah, um, and the fact that the app is there helps a lot because with most characters, the app tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are some characters, such as the doppelganger, that makes it really hard because you have to know at the very beginning what every character does. And so you just don't play with that for the first couple of rounds. And in fact, my go-to way for teaching the game is to actually use the app and say, all right, I'm going to play through the night once, and we're not actually going to do it, but I'm going to show people how it's done yeah, and what the characters do, and then, okay, now we're actually going to play. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, my pick of the week is Antics. Antics is a Debian-based uh, Linux distribution. And it comes with uh, Synaptic Package Manager and the apt-get terminal install method. Um, it's very light. I installed it on a Pentium 4, 1.6 gigahertz with 512 mega RAM. And I'm going to try to cripple this box down to 256 meg and see if it'll install on that. Anyway, um, it, it has a CD, not a DVD, but it all fits on a CD barely. And... Um, you install it from a CD, and uh, I like gedit, and it's not, so I couldn't install gedit, but I did the apt, apt-get update, and then apt-get dist upgrade, and then apt-get install gedit, so that's it. I mean, you install from the CD, and then you update to current, and uh, and you're installing Debian, you know, right from Debian repositories. Um, so for uh, a lightweight, you know, older system Linux distribution, but that uh, people who are used to Ubuntu or Zubuntu or Mint or other Debian uh, and are used to having that uh, software base available, um, I, I recommend the Antics. And um, uh, my future project that I just installed today, so I can't comment a lot on it, is AV Linux. And I'm actually going to try this out on a production machine but it's a custom Linux for audio and video production that includes the jack, you know, audio uh, uh, controller or whatever mixer thing. And uh, so it's designed where all of these apps are compiled so that they're good for audio and video production. It's uh, app at a time tuning for as opposed to just a collection of apps that you can do, you know, like, you can take any Ubuntu and install these apps on it, but by installing the AV Linux, theoretically, I haven't tested it all yet, but everything's tuned for your production. Hmm. So that's yeah, it I, for me. More Linux. A throwback to the the iZombie iPhone, there's an app for that. Uh, you know, there's, there's a Linux for that. There's anything that you want to do uh, in the technology field. Someone has already pre-compiled a Linux that's ready to go. Yeah. I love I love talking computers with Dad because most people you talk computers with and they're like, you know, 16 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of RAM, more RAM, more RAM. And Dad's just like, I want to see how little RAM I can get by with and make a system <laughs> work. Well, I think I can, I can, you know, I think I can go a little lower than that. I think I can pull that off. <laughs> Well, uh, the reason why I'm that way is because, you know, these old system boxes are free. I mean, you can buy computers with the monitor and keyboard for 10 bucks, or get them given to you all the time. But 
they're not worth upgrading the RAM. Mm-hmm. I mean, the RAM's not, it's not contemporary RAM. It's not as cheap as upgraded RAM on a new system. And when you can buy a very nice HP business class workstation for 50 bucks, who's going to upgrade the RAM on a Pentium system? You know, so, but these boxes are still good if you can just find the right software to put on them. You're kind of like the PC necromancer, just bringing all of these <laughs> old systems back to life. <sighs> ah, now we've got a new name to add to the list. Not just Harry Larry, not just Robot Dad, PC necromancer. <laughs> just keep on adding. Yeah. So many aliases. All right, Sarah, your pick. Um, mine is a, I, I guess it's an app. <laughs> it's called Tabletopia. And I don't think I've talked about it on the show yet. So if I have, I apologize. Um, it is a sandbox digital platform for analog games, for board games, basically. And I, it was a Kickstarter. It ended the end of last month. And I backed it at the grand total of $1 because it gave me access to all of their demos so that I could test it out. And today, for the first day, I time I finally got to actually play, sit down and play a game and test it with somebody. And I played Keyflower with my sister-in-law, and it was pretty good. It, it's still in beta. It had some issues that I, I'm assuming are going to be worked out. Um, Keyflower is very big on some, some secrecy. When you play the game on a table, you have these screens that, that hide some of your pieces. And, and one of the issues I noticed was when you pulled the pieces from the bag, as you drug them to your hand, people could see what you were dragging. So they knew what colors you have, which is kind of an important part of that game is people not knowing what colors you have. Uh, yeah. For you to be able to keep some of that secret. Um, and the other thing is, is it let people know how many things you have in your hand. And with a card game, that could be important. Because that would be yeah. knowledge that you would know. And so it's probably just a default setting that they're going to have to figure out how to make that work in a situation such as this game. Um, but other than that, it worked very much so like an analog game. Where we sat there and we, you know, went to the rule book and we puzzled stuff out. Um, there is no AI at this point. Um, and I think they may add that as an option, but I think they'll always have that open gaming possibility as well. Um, and the difference between, I think, this one and a lot of, and some of the other, the other tabletop gaming things are, is that this one is really being backed by a lot of publishers. Like, they're supporting the system and putting their games in, as opposed to somebody else putting their games into a system. Um, so this is all 100% backed by the publishers, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and, and you know, Keyflower is a game that I've only played a couple of times before. And so we it took us a while to get through it, because she had never played it, and... And it's been a couple of months since the last time I played it, and probably a year before that since the first time I played it. So it was there was definitely there's, it's it's um it's not the easiest of games to just pick up and go. There's a lot of icons that you have to figure out, and and some some fiddly bits. 
but it worked really well. I was really impressed. So so now I really feel like I could I could use it as a pick. Um, it is going to be a subscription-based system. Um, you can have a, an account for free. It's going to start, I think, in January is their goal for it to be full-on, you know, there are, there are backers, there are Kickstarter backers that are in it now, but it's still very much a beta, a beta product. Do you play on a tablet, or how does it work? Um, right now, they have it for Windows and Mac, and it uses, um, it starts with a U. Oh, my gosh. Is it like the engine? It's a platform, yeah. Unreal. Um, Unity? Unity. I was about to say, okay. Unity is the, the go-to. The, the yeah, two big engines both start with the U, so it was not a help. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not. It, 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 you know, that's not that's not my brand of geek. So it, so. it uses the Unity the Unity engine and plays on a computer. But you're playing right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They do have plans to add it, add iOS and Android. Yeah. And Linux, and they're also they've been greenlit for steam so oh, cool. so that's their yeah. that's their 2016 plans um yeah, yeah. Right. and 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 the kickstarter is over but if people are interested it's like the the free subscription this is where i was going with it the free the free subscription lets you play there are going to be some free games a lot of people will have like a basic game that you can play and maybe if you have the subscription you might get the expansions or or something along those lines, um, and then a lot of lot of um, classics like chess and checkers and you know Pachisi oh. and stuff like that um, will be available to to anybody who wants to sign up and go in and play. Then they have a membership that's five dollars a month that allows you to play with other people the premium games, and this is going to be Keyflower and Alien Frontiers and Spyfall and, and some of the hotter games that are out now. You know, so some of those it, kind it, of... Is it played across the internet? Yes, it is played across the internet. Okay, I mean, so you you're, each, you're each at a computer device and you're playing the same game and you're right. seeing the same board. Right, exactly. Yeah. And you can manipulate each other's pieces and you can do all yeah. kinds of stuff just like... I mean, you don't want to, mm -hmm. just like when you're sitting at a table. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that... It, it allows you to do things like, you know, if you have house rules, it allows you to go ahead and play with those house rules, which is something I really like because there are certain games that I like to house rule some stuff in. Yeah, um, it just gives you, it just gives you the pieces and the rule. The, the it controls the 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 analog interaction with them. It's got the interface for that. But it doesn't right. enforce any of the rules. It doesn't enforce yeah. anything. And they are thinking about adding that. But I think that every game that's in there is going to continue to have this kind of sandbox platform where you're not yeah. being forced into certain things. Well, and I think, um, that's, and, uh, I think that's the big draw for it. There's, there's two things that make this really awesome. One is the ability to, like you said, play, with, play a board game with someone who doesn't, you know, Desire. live in your area. Um, right. My, my sister-in-law lives in a different country. She plays board games once a year when she comes and visits us. Yeah. So it's a really good way to get to sit down. And even if it's just the two of us, there are some really good two-player games Absolutely. that we could play. Um, um, the other big thing that this really does is it um, takes away a lot of the issues that come with board games is the print runs. 
and the fact that it costs yeah. a lot of money to make those board games and they're usually very limited print runs and if you don't get it right away you may you may not get it unless you're willing to spend an arm and a leg for it so and, and Keyflower is an example of that. Keyflower is a an eighty dollar game on Amazon right now. Um, I don't I don't know if it's in between print runs or if that's just how much it calls uh, costs. I mean, and and Alien Frontiers is the same way. Um, and both of those are, are available. And both of those are games that I very much enjoy. So I'm super excited about that. Plus, it's a good way to you know if you are really seriously thinking about going and buying a game, it's a good way to try one out before. You know, going yeah. and and spending money on something that's going to take up some space on your shelf. The um the last the and this is probably where I will subscribe at if I if I end up subscribing, which I'm pretty sure I will at least for a a, a time, is at the ten dollar level. I get access to the premium games. Plus, I can invite anybody I want to to play those games with me. And they don't have to subscribe. In, yeah. Including non-paying, including non and they don't even have to be a member. You can send them a link to your particular setup. That's great. And they can come that's, in and play. That's smart. My, that's smart. My, yeah, it's brilliant because, you know, <laughs> half of those people are going to go, you know what, I want to be able to do this anytime and go sign up for their own $10 subscription or at the very least $5 subscription. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the thought that, you know, for $10 a month, I might be able to play games with my sister-in-law who lives in Canada that I get to play games with once a year or for $10 a month if we ever add to our computer computers in this house and we have more than one which we would like to do all four of us can play for one my one subscription right a game together when we only get to get do you know get together face to face and do it once a year plus as we've mentioned I live far away from all of the people I play games with so it might even allow me to be able to play a game with somebody that I, you know, on a day that I wouldn't normally be able to because I can't travel that day. So I'm pretty excited about seeing where they're at, you know, come January. Um, and, and I did say that the Kickstarter is over, but they do still have a pre-order that you can do. If you go to their Kickstarter page, which will link, um, there is a pre-order button that you can still get in on some of the Kickstarter prices. And I think basically if you were to go ahead and subscribe now, you would get a month for free and you would get early access. So you would get six months of the gold for $50 instead of $60. And you would get access in December instead of January. Uh, neither one of those things are probably big enough for me that I'm going to do that. I think I'll probably just start in January and pay the $10 and see how they go. But if you really know that this, once you've got to look at it, and there's demos still, you can go in as a backer, you get access to more demos. And Keyflower is one of those that's a backer only demo. But if you go in, there are demos, um, I think on the front page. And also if you go to the comments and you, or not the comments, the updates, and you look for ones that don't say backers only, um, I'm pretty sure that um, Zularetto is one that is available for anybody to play. So, Kier, if you wanted to look at a game, I don't know if you have access to a computer that's not Linux-based, but if you wanted to, to if you wanted to look at a game that you are familiar with and to see how the pieces interact with each other, I know for a fact that that's one that is available for anybody because I I actually logged out of my my um, Kickstarter account and and loaded it up just to make sure that those were still then, accessible 
non but non backwards. But, but then I'd have to play Zularetto, and I, I don't know if it's worth that. <laughs> I'm just saying you could you could just play around with the the pieces. Uh, I, you know, it give you a good idea because I know that's a game you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about it. it I don't think it's going to replace. I mean, you know, I- any more than ebooks mm-hmm. replaced reading a book to, for me. It's not going to replace sitting around a table with friends and family. But there's a lot of times I can't sit around a table with friends and family. So for those instances, I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I've seen I've seen some YouTube videos on it and some people playing it and testing it out and it looks really cool and I'm I'm hoping that uh everything works well and they can get a good Linux version going because I'm I'm interested to play on it some. Yeah, I would definitely invite you to a game. Oh, she would invite me to a game. I feel the love. All right, so that's everybody, right? Yeah. I think so. All right. This is exciting times. This means we get to wrap up the podcast and go to sleep because we're all sleepy. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new podcast full of geeky, geeky, geekiness. Yep, that's that's where I went with that. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Fix it, man. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Fix it, man. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. What the heck was that? (laughs) I don't know, but it's going in the outtakes. (laughs) Whoa! That needs to be in, like... Oh, man. That needs to be recorded and, like, put online for people using scary, you know, indie horror games. That was terrifying. (laughs) I have a terrifying gun.